Hey everyone, it's Katie. If you like the show, help us spread the word. Tell a friend. Find us on iTunes. Rate us on iTunes. And visit our website, thebittersweetlife.net. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away, but I have two wonderful people here with me. Do you want to introduce who you are? Sunny Strong. And Mike Strong. So you must be a married couple, same last name. That's the case. We have known each other for many, many years. 56, I think. No. What, no. 56? We met in 1959 <laughs> in high school, and we just celebrated our 52nd anniversary, wedding anniversary. And we're not the kind of married couple where one corrects the other all the time? You're not? How did you negotiate that? I'm just teasing because I said 56, and he's like, well, I don't know about 56. <laughs> Actually, I think if you subtract 59 from 16, which is now, you'll get a little different number, but that's okay. Did you date in high school also? Yes, I met him when I was 16. She's much younger. How old are you? 75. Part of the reason that we were interested in sitting down together, besides the fact that you listened to the show and wrote to me, we realized that we've never actually talked about studying abroad, which is strange because a lot of the people who listen are people who are going away for college and spending a year overseas. Sunny did that when she was in college. And so tell us what happened to you. So I wanted to marry the person sitting next to me, Mike Strong, whom I met at 16. Inappropriate match. How so? Several things. <laughs> My family had pictured someone with a college education. His mother had been divorced. He's farm farm background, and it was just different. So they sent me to Florence. They thought it was completely safe. It was the first year of Gonzaga in Florence, and wouldn't it be well chaperoned? We had a couple of priests with us, after all. And I'm so glad they were so wrong about the chaperoning. <laughs> so what year was this? 1963 to 1964. We arrived in the fall so it was about 10 months. I think that's interesting. I didn't know that you went partly because your parents were trying to prevent you from marrying Mike. What did you make of that? Oh, I, I knew it all along because I had all these problems behind me, also political ones, because her family was very Democrat and, and my family was very Republican. They're just this whole list of things that were going against me. So I recognized it would be a battle. That's why it took six years to get to the altar. What did you make of her going away for this year? Well, I was in school myself. I mean, I was, I was doing my internship at Sacred Heart Hospital in Spokane. <clears throat> and so I had a full year of long, long hours. So actually, it, it worked out pretty well, except for the communication challenges. Right, because of course, 60s, we have no internet, no nothing until the 2000s, late 1990s. And I also want to mention that part of this exploration that we're doing on today's show are listening back onto the old cassette tapes that Sunny sent home. Actually, you're you're going into the future. That's right, because the 80s. Cassettes, cassettes weren't around then. <laughs> we're talking real to, pennies, reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders. Wonderful. So you sent reel-to-reels home, and we have some of the audio from that, so I'm going to be splicing it in as we go along. So we'll be listening back onto you as a 20-year-old. Is that how old you are? Yes. 20 when I got there, yes. All right. So tell us about what you remember about arriving. 
when we arrived in Florence, we were introduced to the sisters, the nuns. We were living with them. I don't know if they exactly call it a convent because they had several rooms. We were given rules. The harshest one I think about is just acknowledging what other people did in the town that we were in, but we had never heard of. Things like we slept with our mittens because it was so cold. And we had to have very short showers and infrequent showers. Scrolling to the future for a moment, we went back there years, years, years later, 50 years later. We couldn't figure out where the nun's convent was, but we could find out where the pensione was that we lived subsequently after being kicked out of the nun's convent. And that place also had the same rules. So apparently we were just spoiled. And that was sort of the awakening. We had no luggage. The luggage took a long time to get to us. So it was frantic. It was wonderful, exciting. Yeah. (laughs) You're with these nuns and you get kicked out. I feel like there's a big story in there. Yes. I don't want to shock your audience, but we would leave the nuns home after sunset. And ignorantly, we would go for a cappuccino because they were so yummy. We didn't know you weren't supposed to have them in the evening. So (laughs) we would go out there and it wouldn't hurt if we would meet people along the way. But we were just finished with our studies and we were ready to party. So we went out to the nuns. This meant they were housing prostitutes. So partway through the year, we were told and listened that um, if you hold, you know, arm in arm to women going down the street, you're not a prostitute. But that knowledge came a little bit too late. And we were basically asked to leave because of the scandal and also because the priests in charge suspected that we were paying too much. He knew we were paying more than the Italians who were living there. So there was kind of a contention there about the price they were charging these Americans. What did you think as a 20-year-old when they kicked you out? Did you feel like, oh, thank goodness, <laughs> or like we're free? Or did you feel wronged? Like, do you remember what that experience was like? Well, I didn't know what was going to be the next environment. I was pretty much a goody two-shoes. So the idea that we had broken rules affected me at age 20. So I think I was a little bit embarrassed that we were kicked out. And they kind of glossed over it talking about the price issue. What do you remember her saying about that? Do you remember anything, Mike? Well, I certainly remember the issue of going out on the street after five o'clock. I thought that was really hilarious. Looking back on it now, I can understand what the issues were. But I got these tapes and she described all this stuff as she was going. We arrived in Florence, the train station, and the buses drove us just for about, oh, 10 blocks. And one great big huge door, two gold rings on it, is answered by this little tiny nun. These nuns, I cannot believe they are so tiny. They all hugged us, came up to our waist. We all said, buongiorno. That's all we knew. And uh, they said, hello, that's all I knew in English. Didn't know what to think of the place at first. I mean, it's very simple compared to America, but yet it is certainly sufficient. The first week was a little rough. We didn't have any hot water, so we washed our hair and took baths in cold water. Another small problem is that the nuns are so careful about the electricity that if you are across the room and there is a from a light that's on, they go and turn it off while you're right in the room and everything. So we have to uh, protest 
but uh, you were digging out these old letters that you wrote home you found them amusing do you want to give us a line of some of the things that you wrote well sure these are just little excerpts this is september which is the month that we arrived by the way let the record show that i saved her letters did you receive as many letters back from mike absolutely not i thought you had forgotten about me so she had nothing to save, Mike, or? <laughs> oh, yeah, but I, I also want to point out that in, the, in going over these old letters, she mentions on several of them that she had received a letter from me. So I'm not entirely guilty. No, there were some letters. Okay, just not as many as my girlfriends received, right? Okay, this is um, just an excerpt. Yesterday we talked with four French students. One stared me in the face and asked why American girls don't care about their appearance. He said the French girls would rather look beautiful than be comfortable, and that they went to the hairdresser once a week. He said we are too shy. We're too reluctant to go to bed with European men. <laughs> the French hate the way Americans keep throwing high-sounding ideals around. He said, we could say no to such an invitation, but why do we also add, I'm Catholic, or I don't believe in it? <laughs> After all this, he said the Italian men were worse because they didn't care what girls look like, just so they will have the experience with them. Help! Exclamation point. That was one of my early letters. <laughs> do, do you have any idea what you thought about that? You're thinking, um... Well, yeah. Everybody wants to sleep with your future wife. <laughs> yes, well, I'm, I mean, there was this sort of a reputation that Italians had about uh, their uh, interest in women, which we never really fully understood because, of course, we were young and naive. But this is a theme that occurred over and over again, both on her tapes and in her letters, about the advances and the way that the Italian men treated, touched, etc., the girls there. Do you remember how that made you feel? Well, what could I do? I mean, you know, we're <laughs> several thousand miles away, and I'm just hanging on. Do you think that you wrote all that because it was striking you as very unusual, or were you uh, conveying something else? All right, so I'm from the generation where you didn't do it before you were married. So this was just straight. I mean, I was amazed that they would be so presumptuous. So that was my background. Another night went into the, this nightclub called the Old Petit Bois, which is uh, kind of a getting together place for Italians, Americans, Finns, everybody, all nationalities. I couldn't believe it, the way that they dance. Nobody even is dancing. They just hold on to each other, make out the whole time during the song, stop, and then start again when the next song starts. I was just cracking up, staring at everybody. I can't believe this. Is this the same letter as well? Well, it's just, yes, the same letter, a little different subject. It says, we had ox tongue for dinner. Speaking of new experiences when you leave your hometown. Ugh. If it weren't for the Dutch bread and dessert, I might even lose some weight. A French student had a birthday and kissed every girl on both cheeks in celebration. Leave it to the French, n'est-ce pas? <laughs> so I'm one naive. I'm proud of being naive, but I was naive. <laughs> I don't want to jump too far ahead because the next note that you have here is in October, but I do want to eventually ask you like how you enter this experience and then a year later, how you would say you changed. I hope I changed a lot. I really appreciated this incentive to look at my old letters because over and over again, 
I learned from the Italians that money isn't the most important thing, that family and friends are really important and food especially important as well. And that if you encounter someone walking along the street, that's an opportunity. It's not an interruption in your day. And this has a relationship to maybe you're waiting for the plumber and it's taking a long time, but that same plumber is, you know, talking to you on the street, asking you how you are, that kind of thing. The openness and the friendliness and the savoring of life. I hope I never lose. And this is getting a little ahead, but when I saw the Statue of Liberty coming back home after 10 months, it was just a chilly bump experience. I loved it. And then when I, we got off the boat, it seemed to me everyone had a wrinkled brow. You know, this is my impression that we worry too much. You know, we don't really stop and smell the roses. So I hope that I always retain that. And I'm a bit type A, so I need reminding. <clears throat> the transportation, of course, in those days was quite different. So they, they took a ship from New York to Amsterdam, and that's how they got home. So it's 10 days on a ship. Another comment, because I, I did pay attention to the interaction she was having with other men, was that the uh, the ship they went over on was a Dutch ship, and they had a lot of really young good-looking Dutch people working on the uh, on the boat. And apparently some of the girls from that group got real friendly with them. Of course not me. Oh, no. No. One thing I remember about the Dutch and the boat, though, when we boarded the boat at the beginning of our year, as I was going up the gangplank thing, I heard someone say, Yankees. And it was pejorative. It was so clear this was not a good thing. And it was a clue to what I would learn during the year that although I'm proud to be an American, I'm proud of so many things about our country, that if someone was asked at birth, which nationality would you be? They wouldn't necessarily say, oh, I'd like to be an American. That's how chauvinistic I was starting my year in Italy. <laughs> I hope it's gotten better. Did you ever go abroad too, Mike, or no? Well, I've, I've traveled a lot since then, but at that point in my life, I'd never been on an airplane before. And probably the furthest away I'd been is maybe Montana, going fishing. But <clears throat> no, I hadn't. Tra at that point, I had never traveled. Since then, I've traveled all over the world. Since you were sort of sent away to delay this wonderful, happy 52-year marriage, did you have a desire to go explore other cultures, or was this sort of something you were forced into? Oh, no. I started out as a poli-sci major. I wanted to be an ambassador. I've always been fascinated uh, by other countries. Maybe you could say grass is greener type. I hope not that, but definitely fascinated I had a wonderful college professor from Lithuania who got me all excited about this kind of international stuff. So I announced to my parents, naively, that I was going to study in Paris. And they investigated it, and the last they found that it wouldn't be chaperoned. So that was not an option. And I had taken a couple years of college French, and that was sort of my direction. So when the Jesuits started, a program in Gonzaga, at Gonzaga. My dad had taught law school there. He coached the baseball team. It was familiar ground. So he's like, this will be a wholesome program. You can go to this one. How about going to Italy? I was really interested in other countries, so I was very willing to go. Nothing against Mike, but I was excited to go to Europe. Some kids eat some soap, so we said, I would there be a supermarket. And that was a mistake of the year. Have this fabulous modern, modern, clean supermarket. 
where they sell American cereals and all this stuff with the, like Rice Krispies has on it. Uh, it's a snap, crackle, and pop. It has peef, puff, poof. Just a panic. Anyway, they had cookies, you know, and chocolates and all these things that we haven't seen. Once we got out of Germany where they had all those pastries, you know, we haven't really had that much sweets or anything. Once a week, we get a dessert at the noon meal, and that's on Sunday. And besides that, we just never get anything sweet, which of course is good, but anyway, the supermarket was just fantastic. And I didn't buy one thing, but I stayed in there for half an hour. I just went looking at everything. My parents would about died if they could have seen me. I told you I was a goody two-shoes, okay? Each morning as I return from mass, I hear the ragman singing his chant. The nuns are very anxious to hear what we do each time we leave the villa. They are slowly digesting the American college girl. Suora Maria is teaching me the Italian prayers each morning. Need I say this is a letter to my family? <laughs> Every other week we eat at the boys' place. It is a regular Jesuit house, and there are eight Italian students there whom we try to converse with. Next month, some Italian girls will be moving into our place. I bought an umbrella. Also bought some badly needed skirt hangers. Last night, I saw Lucia de Lamamour by Donizetti. It was a very colorful opera, and the music was tremendous. We caught about one of every ten words spoken, but the acting was so well done that we understood enough. The sets were elaborately done also. The audience hisses and shouts its sentiments without reservation. <laughs> I love that. Now, when you read that, do you, can you immediately picture that night? Yes, and there's kind of a postscript on that one because um, my closest friend, who was also a student there, that started her lifelong passion <laughs> for opera. She commutes from Marble Mount to the Seattle Opera. She has for low these many years since. I mean, I, I like the idea of going to the opera. I, like, I love getting dressed up for the opera. I want people to ask me what I'm doing that evening, but I don't really connect to it very well. <laughs> how about you? How do you feel about the opera? I'm not an opera fan, <clears throat> although I've had some Italians who worked for me in the lab who were absolutely incredible supporters of the opera had one of the guys that collected I think every album that had ever been sung by Maria Callas I mean that was his favorite opera singer that makes me wish Tiffany was here because she would know who that was yeah, I, thought that, I thought of that immediately with the, with Tiffany I know. so what, contrast that letter to the family with this letter to Mike from the same month <laughs> yes okay None of us have been snowed by the Italian male, an old expression. Define. Head over heels, in love with, impressed. We think they're great. Mm -hmm. Snowed. None of us have been snowed by the Italian male. They are so insistent that they're irresistible. They just pressure and pressure. Most of them know three words in English. Kiss me, yes? <laughs> no girl ever returns from a walk by herself without a story about an Italian man who grabbed her, pinched her, or followed her, propositioned her, or all four, exclamation point. Wow, geez, none of that happened to me when I was in Rome. No, nor me these days. Those were the days. I remember the story about her talking about the girls going to classes in the morning 
when they all came out. So there's like 35 women, right? And five blondes. The, the Italian male, males would set up basically a, a corridor that they had to pass through. So all the men would be on, on either side as the women walked through this corridor on their way to class. I must admit that I admired the Italian men's practice of saying bombolina to each one of us. I mean, we were a varied looks. <laughs> and they thought every woman was terrific. So I really didn't mind because I was with my friends going through the gauntlet every morning. Just no touching, please. In some ways, it's very complimentary. Yes. A boost of confidence as you head out into the world. And it's another way, you know, zest for life kind of thing. It absolutely. Puts a spring in your step. We wear heels every day to class and just wearing a bulky sweater and a pleated skirt is just practically like wearing blue jeans to school. I mean, you had to wear a classic sweater and kind you like and a straight skirt, suit jacket, and heels. Uh, I'm still going crazy over the European hairdos. I'm really having a blast. You probably will die when you see some of the pictures. Okay, speaking of deep. You might remember what happened in November 1963. I said, it is very interesting and inspiring to be on the other side at such a time as when the president of a foreign country dies. I sat down with my dictionaries and tried to read the Florence and Paris accounts of the tragedy until we were able to get a report in English from the Munich army base. Bishop Topol celebrated mass in Kennedy's memory on Saturday morning, and we all attended. This was the first mass in Italy, especially for him. All the flags have been at half-mast, and the concerts, operas, etc., scheduled for last weekend were all called off because of the killing. I watched the funeral on TV this morning. It is so hard for us to believe it happened. It really makes us feel very far removed. Two fellows in my French lit class at the university came up to me and offered their sympathies in broken English. The nuns were crying when we returned after dinner Friday night. The Italians have very big hearts. Were you surprised by how affected Italy was by the murder of John F. Kennedy? Yes and no. I could see pictures of Kennedy and windows, so it kind of gave me a little clue. Mm -hmm. But it was beautiful. It reminds me of something that I was very surprised of, though, that I may not have written about. Okay, it's 1963. World War II happened, we studied it. I came to Europe and talked with people, you know, the grandmas, etc., the parents who had experienced the war. And it was so present to them. It was to me as if it had just happened. I hadn't experienced a war. So that point, the poignancy and the depth and the memories, and not just looking at bomb buildings in some of the other cities, but the memories. It was as if it had just happened. I guess that sums it up. That was a lesson. Another thing I remember about that November time period is is that you did Thanksgiving, which they were uh, not familiar with. So the women fixed, I guess the women, fixed a Thanksgiving dinner for the Italians, and, that, and they were quite curious about this. Okay. I had written, Wednesday, a group of us are attempting to make 10 cherry, 10 apple, 17 pumpkin, and six mince pies using the oven of one of the nearby bakeries. It's actually a bar, but I said bakeries. We will be, we, we will be up all night, I swear, but it will be worth it just to have dessert. No altruism. I wanted a pie. We're having 100 people at our Thanksgiving festa. Could be big. 
We usually try to speak Italian at all meals, and Thursday we even get to use English the whole time. Yes! <laughs> so much easier. I like how you kind of whitewash certain things. Like, why would you say a bakery instead of a bar? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Well, a bar was someplace that I shouldn't be, I suppose. So bakery kind of... And it was new to me that a bakery could be for children and you can go get your coffee. I mean, a bar could be for children and you get your a coffee. Is that letter to your family? Nope, that was to you. So she was whitewashing stuff to you as well. Same, same idea, I think, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that you were keeping from him while you were gone? Oh, yeah. Do you want to tell us what you remember? <laughs> well, I happen to know that she ended up with an Italian boyfriend. Do you want to tell us about that? Well, one thing I'd forgotten, I can safely tell since we have company, a witness here. I'd forgotten <laughs> this when I was going through the letters that I had written my father and asked if how one arranges for two wonderful Italian young men to spend a year in, in the United States. And I said, they're very intelligent and they very well informed. They know much more than I do about real politics, which absolutely was true. They knew more about America than I knew from my civics classes, etc. And wouldn't they be wonderful to learn about America? And then they planned absolutely after one year to go back and to share the information you know, with the people back home. Well, one of them was Torquato Parisi. He was a distraction. <laughs> Had a motorcicletta. Tall, black hair. Big nose. Blue <laughs> eyes. No big nose. <laughs> Did you keep in touch with him when he came home? No, and I, told, I guess I'm still a goody two-shoes. My friends in our 50th reunion back in Florence... Two of my roomies had made arrangements to meet their, the guys that they had dated. Their two Dutch guys came to Florence or they went to you know Holland or, or that's my old school. <laughs> they went to the Netherlands. Anyway, they got together. They said, oh, we're Christmas cards. I mean, we've been in contact. Well, I'm like, it would be an occasion of sin. I shouldn't contact Turquato ever. And I'm glad I didn't. But he did show up unbidden. Not really showed up physically, but... I can't even remember which person said this to me, but they, someone came to me years later, maybe 20 years ago or something, and said, um, I was in Cuba. Do you know Torquato Perisi? And I said, oh, yeah, he had always wanted to go to Cuba. He happened to belong to the Communist Party. I don't want our house to be possessed. Um, <laughs> at that time, the Communist Party in Italy was addressing the plight of the youth. They could go to school till they were 14. That was kind of it. They needed to work. And their opportunities were few, and the economy wasn't so great. So the Italian Communist Party was responding to that. So I went to a couple meetings, and Turquato was quite active in that. Anyway, he asked this person if she knew Sonny O'Melveny, because that's my maiden name, from Spokane, Washington. And he said, yes, it was just a riot. Anyway, that was that. <laughs> that's my interaction. <laughs> that's it. That's it. So when you left, you never saw him again? No. That's new information for me, by the way. Um, <laughs> she hadn't shared that before. <laughs> How do you feel about this uh, this boyfriend that she had over there? Well, I wasn't too crazy about it, but, but it's it's been a habit of hers when she's been separated from me, which I think was her parents' objective all along. She went to the University of Portland her first two years. I was at Gonzaga. I got a, a Dear Mike letter uh, during that period of time. But she did come back. I mean, the boomerang effect was playing well. But uh, then she goes to Italy, 
And of course, she ends up with an Italian boyfriend. Not that I was being uh, straight-laced myself, but nevertheless, you know, we do have to pay attention to those things. I was going to ask. It's not like you weren't going on dates during this period of time yourself. I might have been, yes. It's true. I might have might have been dating myself, yes. His nickname is Speedy. Oh, yeah? How so? <laughs> yeah, they both turn red. <laughs> you have to earn it, you know. That was my college uh, nickname, yes. (laughs) And I I remember from the tapes of you lamenting the fact that he's not writing enough, that you miss him so much. Tell me about that. That is absolutely honest, and I I hadn't met Turquoise in the first few months. So, but it was really true, and I still planned on marrying him, but I became so philosophical, because when you stay at a youth hostel in Europe, in those times anyway, I hope still now, you discuss the cosmos. I mean, you listen to people telling you there is no God, and they know all of St. Thomas's proofs, and you're like, wow, I was just really broadening. I don't know, it sounds kind of rude with my husband sitting next to me, but it was so different living there. Very few people spoke English. I was so thrilled to think in Italian. My roomies told me I even spoke out in my sleep in Italian. So I immersed myself. I cared about Mike, but I definitely had a very, well, we had school four days a week. They still just have Monday through Thursday, and you travel the other three days. And we went all around the world, So I was absorbed in the experience. One of my biggest regrets from college is that I didn't even think about going overseas. How important would you actually say it is for somebody in their 20s to go overseas, or is it? Well, it depends on what your attitude is when you get there. Okay, I'm getting a little judgy here. I have met people who never spoke to an Italian when they were in Italy for, you know, one to 25 weeks. I mean, that's an exaggeration. I think that you should try to learn some of the language and you should definitely, now that everyone speaks English, you don't really have to do that. But I think you should really have conversations with the people from that country, not just drift through and go to your American hotel. I'm very big on that. That's where the judgy comes in. Because I have talked with people who came back with amazing generalizations and I'm like, but, 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 that wasn't my experience. I would encourage everybody, including my grandson, The experience at that time of life when you're deciding whom you want to be and you're thinking of the perspective of being an American in this world, in the small world that we have today, it informs you terrifically. I like uh, to read the Christian Science Monitor because the international coverage and I think it's even-handed. And I can read about all these different countries and if I've been there, I have a different perspective. I don't know it all, I just have a hint that maybe there's more to the story or that doesn't sound quite right. So for your own pleasure, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Also, it will be with you your whole life. 
looking at our country from from outside. I guess there's 75,000 Americans living in Rome, but I think that it's so much more important to really get an idea of how the Europeans live only by living it. And like in Florence, we have to talk, speak Italian all the just constantly, you know, with the shopkeepers and stuff. And we don't eat American food at all. We haven't even found a place where they have hamburgers. But in Rome, heavens, there's always American bars. And uh, most of the, the people, like the, the shopkeeper will speak English, and maybe the clerks won't. But there's just so much American influence in Rome that it's a fun place to visit. But we still went, we decided we wouldn't trade for Florence. Another huge difference is in the Italian men in Rome. Like in Florence, they just look you up and down and everything, you know, and once in a while you'll get pinched, but in in Rome they just sit there and in about five or six, you know, groups of five or six and just follow you down the street, you know, grab you and all this stuff. There's so much, I mean, really a bother to just pay a compliment, I guess. Mike, I don't know if you would remember, but do you remember um, what she was like when she came back? Would you say that she seemed any different? <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> Tell us why. <laughs> so she. I don't want to snort it. <laughs> she and her girlfriend uh, went to, to Ireland at the end because they were both Irish, and so they they went to Ireland and they bought these nylons. So when I met her at the uh, airport to pick her up, she comes down the ramp off the airplane. I mean, again, this is. 64 and she's gained about 15 pounds and she's wearing these bright orange stockings and I barely recognized her so changed well yeah I'd say so <laughs> who is that person <laughs> I can't help myself I love bread Plus, they would slop, they would take the meat, they would say we're having veal for dinner, and we would start to hear the pounding, you know, as we approached the pensione, because we subsequently moved to a pensione. And it was tasteless and tough, but the bread was delicious, and I was hungry. Now, the nylons. Nylons in those days were really expensive, and you wore them once, and they ran, and you paid $5, and you wore them, and you, you couldn't afford them. But... Ireland had industrial strength. <laughs> and you picked orange maybe because I, I, th- <laughs> I thought it blended in. I didn't realize it was so orange. I just knew it was so sturdy. I was so grateful. <laughs> well, what about, what about on the larger sense, Mike, besides uh, just change it? Yes. <laughs> Is that what you meant? No. <laughs> Beyond a physical appearance. <laughs> well, we had a number of interesting discussions, uh, particularly her experience with attending the Communist Party meetings, because, you know, I came from a pretty conservative family. And, and of course, in those days, it wasn't so long after all the McCarthy uh, hearings and all that sort of thing that, uh, you know, being a communist was not exactly an acceptable thing to be. Yeah. Plus, I was, uh, had been accepted into the Navy, so I was going to be joining the, the Navy 
right at the time we were about to be married. I was a little nervous about whether or not I'd ever p- pass any security checks because she'd been seen at a Communist Party meeting. That's <laughs> <laughs> before cell phone cameras, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, right. Less proof. <laughs> so clearly her, her uh, whole attitude towards life had changed. I mean, really, it was, it was very interesting to see the transformation. Yeah, and how soon after getting back did you two actually get married? I mean, it must have taken some time to come back together after being apart, right? I was in lab school. She came back in June or July? I think July. July. My lab school finished the 1st of August, and then I had to go back to the ranch for harvest. I was uh, working on the farm, and it was about 100 miles from Spokane, so I would drive uh, on Saturday. I'd get off early on Saturday afternoon and drive the 100 miles to Spokane so we could date, go out, and then I'd stay over at her place and then sleeping in the basement. And and then we'd go out on Sunday, and then I'd drive home at 2 in the morning. I'm not sure how I ever survived because I was always falling asleep on the highway. But (laughs) but, uh, at that same time, it was during the Vietnam buildup. And so... uh, the draft was very active. I knew I was about to be drafted. Before I finished lab school, I, I wrote a letter to all of the surgeon generals at Army, Navy, and Air Force. I think her father had something to do with that. And it just happened the Navy was starting a new program for uh, lab people, medical technologists, to, to run blood banks. And I got into the Navy program about the same time that I got my draft letter. So I went through the whole draft process and they held it up until I heard from the Navy whether I was accepted or not, and I was accepted. So we made plans to get married, and basically we got married in Spokane and got in the car and drove to the East Coast for me to join the Navy, and 20 years later I retired. So it's a short story about what happened when I first got home. I melted. I mean, I love the way Mike looks with all his freckles and his olive skin. He has a little native blood in him. He's neat. I fell in love with him because he was wearing a shirt that his mother had ironed perfectly. He's kind and he's generous, you know, so there was no question. And I danced. Oh, fabulous dancer. But there was a big problem with this family who respected education. And I was a good student. Well, What are you going to do about your college, Sonny? You shouldn't get married until after you graduate. It's just in May. Oh, no, I must go with my man. He's going, you know, to the East Coast. So I didn't finish college at that point. And I'm so proud of my dad for this one. Unbeknownst to me, he put enough money for a semester of college in a D.C. bank. That's where we were going to be living. It would only be used for education. I took advantage of that, and I went to George Washington, and when we lived in Philly, I went to Rutgers or whatever. I I eventually, in absentia, I finished my Gonzaga U undergraduate degree, thanks to my dad putting that money in there, when I, as a person who's 20, only thinks about my guy, and no, I can't wait a semester. How did your parents end up coming around to the two of you getting married? Did you hear about the Navy? My dad is very army. And you'd think that'd be a conflict, but it was military. It made him fine. It made him okay. And they ended up loving him, of course. (laughs) Only took six years. Yeah, (laughs) six years. So uh, so Melanie and Linda and I walked back by ourselves, and of course they're in the red light to 
music, which is really interesting. And we uh, we only had about, we had a period of two blocks. There were, uh, see, ten, I think it was nine or ten cars stopped us and asked us, you know, how much, you know, this little treat. And uh, I guess they are, it's really, they're, one of the main red light districts of Rome, and you're walking along there, girls, oh, it was really, it was kind of fun at first until they started getting out of their cars and following us and all this stuff. I was kind of panicked. <laughs> they went back to the dorm when we got to sleep about, oh, heavens, one o'clock or something like that. And the next morning we had to get up at because we had gotten special tickets from North American College for the consecration the next day of the 20 bishops in St. Peter's. And the Pope Paul said the Mass, he actually said the Mass, and I guess this is very rare that he will say the Mass in public. So here we were, we had second row seats. We were right behind the bishops. And I just can't explain it, Mike. We were there in the cathedral, or in St. Peter's, for from 8 o'clock in the morning till 12 at noon, and we just never once did we ever get tired. There was so much to see. It was just, I couldn't believe that the Pope was actually saying Mass. And they had it broadcast on a loud system so we could understand everything because it was Latin. And the whole St. Peter's, if you can imagine, answers these prayers in Latin. Oh, it was just so, it just so much emphasized the unity of the Catholic Church. It was just really beautiful. Well, we should probably end it pretty soon, but is there uh, a few more lines from these letters that we shouldn't miss before we head on out? Okay, this is January, and I really can't remember exactly when I met Turquoise. I have never been more lonely than now, darling. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I can't see how I will last till June. I'm getting so sick of all the men in the world except you, believe me. I know I can never expect to get more attention from men as I'm getting this year, and I'm glad of it. It's not that big of a compliment either because being feminine is the only requisite for their undivided attention. I swear a young woman, 18 to 25 years old, could go around the world, dance and dine and sightsee for about $10. Anyway, I'm so thankful I have you to think of, for if I didn't have this reassurance, I swear I hated all men in general. Now, the fellows on our group are really sweet to us and nice guys, but they seem a little young acting to me. Also, whenever I feel lonely for you, I go up to Jim Boyd or one of the other guys who has a girl back home and we cry on each other's shoulders, figuratively speaking. <laughs> anyway, I have been very thankful that I came to Europe with a group and I like every one of my comrades. Oh, I love that. Mike? <clears throat> they had an amazing year. Their Christmas time, they went to the Middle East and they went to Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Egypt and... Lebanon, and in the spring they went to uh, Spain, and they did this whole year on $3,000 that included room board tuition and all those trips. I mean, it was an incredible experience. Now, I think the reason that they were able to do that is because the priests who organized this had no idea how to make a business plan, and so they had big problems partway through the year running out of money, <laughs> but I was pretty concerned about her, actually, because in some of her letters, some of the experiences she had with men were really horrendous. We take turns as far as eating goes. One, one week we eat at our place, and the next week we eat at the boys' place. So there's always some of the boys over here, and then so 
on bus and some of us that were there. And when we go over there, we can speak with the Italian boys and he helps us with our language and stuff. But I really think that the Italian man is, acts more immature or something. I don't know what the story is. Melanie and I were sitting in the park one day and five soldier, Italian soldiers came up to us and talking to us. You know, it's real interesting at first because you want to speak the language and all this junk. But they just, they sit there and ask you what you're doing after breakfast, you know, dopo la prima la colazione, what you're doing after lunch, dopo la pranzo, and after dinner, dopo la, you know, cena, whatever it is. They, they sit there and ask you what you're doing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you know. And, ah, oh, just insistent, insistent until it drives you bugs, you know. We're scared to really accept any dates, so you have no sweat as far as that goes. It's not so bad when the young guys, you know, make comments, pinch here, something like that, but it's the old guys, everybody, all the men, they just stare, stare, stare all the time. You uh, spoke about one of your experiences uh, in one of the episodes, and she had many of those. Yeah, that was the assault episode. I think we, mm-hmm. Tiffany and I both talked about the hazards of traveling and not quite knowing what's going on. Yeah, you had one on an on elevator in the Vatican. Do you want to tell us about it? No. I subsequently, subsequently was a victim of rape as an adult, and I, I'm kind of not going there. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Mike, did you feel like you couldn't, in that way, were these letters, I don't know, like a sort of mental torture or like where were you mentally when you're receiving all this and so far away it was disturbing to read about that because uh you know the clearly those kind of experiences are going to change you and uh it concerned me that she would come back with feeling more or less like she explained there in her letter that uh, it might affect our relationship but fortunately we we got past it Mm -hmm. Did you find another clip you want to yeah. read before we uh, yeah. before we close? I'm trying to have one that I haven't said anything about before. We stopped off to visit Graziano, an Italian fellow who is getting married this Thursday. He is so nice and very patient with my Italian language. I'm excited about the wedding. From what I understand, we will attend at the church ceremony and then just visit and eat all day long. <laughs> I've been abstaining in view of tomorrow's orgy and don't fear being disappointed. Don't I sound like a disrespectful glutton? The thing is, Catholic, the thing is that our food is very institutional, though substantial, and yet really good Italian food is better than one can imagine. All the dear Italian mamas have been talking about this wedding out their windows for at least a month, and they will keep close track of it for years to come. No one gets by with anything here. These people are so observant and curious that they'd make the best eyewitnesses in the world. And then we went up to another, they have a Michelangelo Square also, Captain Avono with these fabulous fountains, just about five times as big as the Trevi Fountain. Just statues, statues, they're just magnificent. And then um, at night they're all lit up, just gorgeous. It is so romantic, so they can't stand this, Mike. Oh, anyway. Father took us afterwards to have some cappuccino, which is kind of whipped milk and coffee. And then it has chocolate, kind of cocoa grated over it. It's really good. Both of you have made sort of a ritual of going back to Italy on a pretty regular basis. Is that because of this experience? Like, did Italy become sort of a, a center point for your travels? Or what do you think? Well, my career in science has taken us around the world by coincidence. 
uh, I'm on a major project right now with the World Health Organization, and, and it's centered in Rome. So the, the transplant programs uh, in, are centered in Rome, and the, uh, this project has run that organization. So it takes us there at least once a year. And then I'm writing some materials for uh, various aspects of transfusion and transplantation, and, and uh, those activities are in Europe. So we, we've been traveling between Geneva, where WHO is, and, and Rome. And most of the meetings, however, have been in Rome. So we'll be going back there again in November. What do you do? What do I do while he's in his meetings? Yeah. <laughs> I set off on my own in my 73 years old self. <laughs> But I've done this for all those years. I just take off on my own, and I do try to use my Italian. Um, I must admit it's disappointing to me because so many people prefer to speak English rather than listening to my very slow Italian. But sometimes if I'm going to buy something or any, I'm going to patronize a place, I say, I would really appreciate it if you would let me speak Italian. When our daughter asked me to take her to, to Florence... She was expecting her first baby, and she said, I don't know what life's going to be like beyond this, but you've always told me about Florence. You've told me about Italy. So let's go to Italy. You know, she has baby in her tummy, so to speak, and mom, and she doesn't know what the future is going to be like as far as her commitments. So we went to Florence, and I got there on that soil, and I looked at her, and I said, honey... I think I'm more myself in Italy than I am in the States. What did you mean by that? Stop and smell the roses. I get a little bit busy here with all my commitments and such. I care about others, which is a good thing, but I need to almost schedule my relaxation. So when I'm in Italy, I don't have any other responsibilities. I guess that's most other places, but I also have the wonderful example of their zest for life. And it resonates. And then when I speak Italian... I guess I feel more open and relaxed. That was something that we've talked about on the show. That is that something that's up with American culture, where we, you know, you come back and you immediately start going, I need to do more. I need to fill my life with more things or something like that. As I said, you get a perspective of our own culture from outside, and that's a very different perspective. I'm so sure of myself, which isn't bad when you're 20 or any age. And so I said, I will never have two cars you know i'm always going to wear subtle neutral colors and heels of course it's so comfortable here so i mean when i returned we really have a lovely environment here anyway but i did learn that those weren't that material things weren't important but i was so enamored of everything everything they did seemed to be so interesting to me so most of the things were to be copied and some not so much <laughs> but i remember a friend of mine uh, through mike science wrote a book it's harvard press book about um, woodrow wilson and the american myth i read it because she's my friend it's quite a scholarly book but there is a section there where she says when italians came to the united states there was all this bias against them, right? So many different groups, but Italians as well. And why? Because they were taking it easy. Why? Because they were laughing and taking a long time enjoying the, the company at dinners. All these things. They didn't seem like it was the most important thing in the world to get something done now. So that's they're criticized. Then more people, not just the very wealthy, eventually now go to Italy 
we go there on purpose. We save our pennies so we can go there. We love being there. Why? The same characteristics for the same reasons that we rejected them when they came to our country. So that's a sad part of our history. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you have anything else you want to say, Mike, before we say goodbye? Well, of course. Um, <laughs> there are so many stories. We could probably, probably spend the whole day, and, and we're both kind of storytellers anyway. But just to say a little bit more about that experience of, of traveling abroad, I, we have friends now, I think, in most of the major cities in the world, friendly enough that they're quite open with us. <clears throat> in general, they don't maybe share their thoughts to, to Americans in general because, uh, you know, it's a little bit risky. But because we know each other so well now, they're quite open about what's happening in America. So we, we get a lot of feedback about what's going on in America. And, and all over the world, people track what's going on in this country. For the most part, they know a lot more about our politics than most Americans know. It's really been an interesting experience to talk with them about our system of government. It's just uh, a completely different perspective that you would never get anywhere else. I don't want to talk to them about our elections. That's the only bad thing about our upcoming Italian trip. It'll be after the elections, and I, yeah, sure. we'll see. <laughs> you're hoping that you're not talking about President Trump or... <laughs> Amen. We'll find out. Polling-wise, it's looking good, people, that he's not going to win. Um, but we don't know. Uh, well, thank you for this, and maybe we'll have to do it again and hear more of the stories. But thank you so much for doing this. You are welcome. I know it helps keep a commitment to go walking if you have bittersweet along with you. <laughs> thank you. And thank you, Mike. Thanks for coming out. You were the one that uh, shared the tapes originally, whether or not Sunny knew, so I appreciate that. Yeah, I think uh, she wasn't quite aware of that, and initial reception was perhaps not so positive. But <laughs> like everything else, she gets over my eccentricities. I actually have one more question about those reel-to-reel tapes in general. How did you decide to send audio back rather than just letters? It was rather advanced, and he's an early adapter. So friends of all ages use him as their iTech person, doesn't matter what age. He worked at Penny's department store, and they sold this plastic tape recorder, reel-to-reel. So he bought two of them. We only talked about Mike's shortcomings. I don't know where mine is. I don't know where the, his tapes are, I must admit. Um, but that's why. It's like a new toy. I mean, wow, look at this portable. It runs by batteries. There were some technical difficulties, however, because we thought they would be a match because they're the same make and everything, but they're really cheap. Mm-hmm. Apparently, my tapes didn't play very well on her recorder. She had to figure out how to make them go faster because otherwise I sounded like I did. And this was germane because I was listening to the tapes in the bathroom because I lived with lots of other people and shared my room, etc. So the bathroom was the private place. So that's where I would record and listen to Mike's tape recording because I was I thought it was so private. Actually, it sounded very professional because it was like she had the reverb turned up. Yeah, yeah. A nice kind of echo yeah, in the background. Echo in the background. So as we have been listening to these tapes, we should be picturing you in the bathroom. What, sitting in a tub or in the shower? Closed toilet seat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am now sitting in the john on the edge of the bathtub so that no one can hear me 
recording this. I think I already told you that my roommates are Melanie Ferguson and Joan Schiffler. So they're about laughing their thoughts off in the room right now because I had to come all the way in here to do the tape. <laughs> well, thanks again, you guys. It's so nice to meet you. Same here. And uh, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Thanks for all the ways you support us. Give us a good rating on iTunes, maybe five stars if you like the show. It will help other people discover that we exist. Thank you. You're the best. <laughs>